0: Romans chapter 8, if you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, I do want to thank Quint for uh, his faithfulness to the Lord and getting the word out, and uh, we do pray for those that were saved and touched by the message of the gospel. You know, what's interesting is hearing Quint talk about some of the things he encounters and uh, just the way he goes about just allowing the Spirit of God to lead him from place to place. I personally have had the privilege uh, to be with him one on one in those settings, and it is amazing to see how God uses just simple faithfulness and simple obedience. And and when you look at the book of Acts, we've been studying the book of Acts on Wednesday evenings. Uh, It's amazing to see the similarities. Something 2,000 years ago that happened uh, as it relates to what people are experiencing today uh, really just shows you how real God is and how he's been moving for 2,000 years, especially through the message of the gospel. And so I just thank Quint for his simple uh, obedience and faithfulness. and, And by the way, as he said, it's nothing outside of our own reach when we're just faithful to him. And so I hope you will be challenged by that. Well, many of you are saying, where's Christmas around here? Well, next week when you come in here, it'll be Christmas, I promise you, okay? Uh, The music will be geared around Christmas, the sermons will all be gathered around Christmas, and uh, we'll have three good old-fashioned weeks of Christmas. Now, uh, you look at us and say, how come we're not ready? Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you have already got everything decorated and every gift purchased? Okay, you're the only ones who can say anything about this, okay? All right, now, nah. but uh, anyway, I hope you will make sure to be a point be here for the next three weeks. And by the way, it's a great time of year to invite people to come to church. It's amazing how people get nostalgic this time of year. And uh, it's a great opportunity to bring them in. They will definitely hear the Christmas stories and see what surrounded the birth of our Savior. And uh, we'll uh, tie the gospel message to all that. So I hope you'll make a point to be here and bring someone. All right, Royal Invitation. Today we're on part two of Living With Purpose. And it wasn't intended to be a part two, but uh, we have a part two this week. And uh, so if you'll look at the introduction down your outline, I filled in some things that we covered last week. One of the basic truths that every believer needs to understand is what is God's purpose for my life? Now, when you look at your purpose, you look at what God's doing in and through your life. Some of you may be sitting here and you're like, what do you mean God's purpose for my life? I'm I'm on the other side of everything. No, no, every day is a new day. His mercies are new every day. What he would like to do in and through us is new every day. We just got to go with simple obedience. I think so many times we complicate that question and then look on your outline. When we understand what God's purpose is for our lives, then we will better understand why he allows difficult circumstances to come into. our lives. Now, when you hear that, when you hear that statement, you need to remember, and this is a tough part. Sometimes suffering or difficult circumstances get us to the purpose. Now, we don't like to hear that. That's not popular. That doesn't sell a lot of books in our day and age. But I'm here to tell you, that's what we find all through scripture, Sometimes it is through the difficult circumstances of life. Sometimes it's through the mere suffering of life that we get to the purposes God has for us. Two weeks ago, we looked at this whole idea of where does suffering come from? What causes it? Well, first of all, sin. The fact that we were born in sin. How many of you know you had a sin nature when you arrived? You did, according to Scripture. And then you proved it when you sinned. And so we're all born with a sin nature. That causes suffering. Situations cause suffering. We're living in a fallen world. We're living in a fallen body. And I think we all are aware of that. And then there's self. Self is a cause for suffering. Uh, it's the whole idea that we sin. Sometimes we, we, we think the whole thing's about us. And, and then the principle of sowing and reaping is there in our lives. How about this? The enemy, Satan himself, seeks to destroy those who claim the name of Jesus. And then of course we know that there's a whole idea of salvation. Our salvation brings a certain amount of suffering to many of us, especially if we live out that faith radically, especially if we are obedient to what God calls us to, there will be suffering just because we are his child and this world doesn't like much of that. And then we looked at the whole idea of coping with suffering. And again, this was two weeks ago. The key to dealing with suffering is having the correct perspective, the big picture perspective, in Romans chapter 8, look at verse 18 again. I know I've covered it. This is the third week in a row, but it's so important for you to see this. He says, Paul says, for I consider, he's talking about perspective. He's talking about suffering's potential. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time that implies it's not permanent are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And it's that whole idea of what God is capable of doing through our suffering. And then James comes along in this crazy verse that we hear about. When he says in James 1, 2, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. When they're coming out from every direction, coming at you. He's saying, consider it joy. What are they talking about? They're talking about looking at the potential of what God can do with the suffering that comes to our lives. And then, of course, we looked at the whole idea of realizing that suffering is temporary. Uh, for some of you, it's been in it maybe 20, 30 years. I, I know some people that have suffered many years of their lives. Maybe it's health or whatever it may be. Guess what? It's still temporary compared to, compared to eternity. And then there's a the whole idea that Jesus is returning. There's a the whole idea that we're not in this alone. The Holy Spirit is there. He's the comforter. He's praying for us. And then this is where it ties into where we are or where we were last week. God is working through it accomplishing His purposes through our lives. Look on your outline. We then came last week to this whole idea of God's promise in this whole setting, the whole context of difficult circumstances, the whole context of suffering when He says this in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to what? His purpose, not our purpose. You see, this verse doesn't make sense to many of us when we only live for our purposes. When we begin to see that our life, and this is what's so difficult, is really not about us. This life that we've been given, this gift that we've been given called life, the purposes that come out from this life are not founded in us, but what God desires to do in and through us. And that whole idea of works together for good is that whole idea of synergy. The whole that that God said is good becomes reality through the sum of its parts. He's saying that the potential for good, the potential to, to just totally transform your life can come from the parts that make up the whole. And he says, those things come together to create something good and lasting in your life. And then, of course, we looked at last week, verse 28, look on your outline, does not look at life blindly. It doesn't say that all things are good. It just says that those things work together for good. The things that we would probably call tough times in our lives or bad things. He's saying God can turn it around. Verse 28 does not look at life self-centeredly. You remember us talking last week that, that we're not the big picture? You see, so many times we've been called to look at the big picture. And I think that's what scripture says over and over again. The big picture is not about us personally. We're just part of the picture. The big picture is Jesus himself. He's gonna tell us that in verse 29. But we need to realize in the context of who he is, we're a part of that. And so we are not to look at our lives self-centeredly. How about this? Verse 28 does not look at life unrealistically. Do you realize that there are very, very few happily ever afters in this world? Very, very few. And then verse 28, however, does look at life forgivenly. Listen, I don't know about you, but I have great potential to mess up my life. How many of you realize we all have that? Some of you have a past that that revealed that. And thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God for the cross. Thank God that he's working in and through our lives. Thank God for all that. But listen, when God, verse 28 is saying, he can take all these things, all these things, and make them for good. Not only that, verse 28 does look at life strategically. He doesn't say almost everything, but he says what? All things. All things work together. You see, God is intentionally and strategically using the parts of our lives to create the whole purpose for our lives. To bring it all together. Next, verse 28 does not look at life, or excuse me, does look at life purposely. It says, and we know. This word means we know with absolute unshakable confidence because of our past experience that these things are true. It means that we can count on it because we've seen it play out before. How many of you have seen, how many of you have lived long enough or lived in the trenches sometimes of faith long enough to know that you've seen some things in life come around twice or more than that? And you've known that going into it, you fretted over it. You worried over it. You you were discouraged. I mean, it led you to many times despair, but on the other side, he came through. Only to go back into some of that sometimes. You would think we would eventually get it, that we could trust him. And we, we, we're gonna look at that in just a moment. But then we go from God's promise to God's picture. In verse 29 of Romans 8, it is the purpose behind 828. So what is God's number one purpose for our lives? Look at Romans chapter eight. Look at the second part of verse 29. To be conformed to the image of his son. We looked at this last week. His purpose is to make you conform to the likeness of his son. To make you like Jesus Christ. The scripture says many, in many places that God uses two things. His word, his promises, and then that whole idea of circumstances. To accomplish what he desires to do in our lives. So God's promise is verse 28. He's working through everything in our life. God's, God's promises, verse 28. God's purpose is verse 29 to make you like Jesus. And then we come to the third part: God's process. Is the fact that he's all knowing. I gave you these two examples last week, and I want to give them to you again because they tie into where we're headed with the rest of the message. Richard Nixon. You remember this illustration, I believe. Knew the moon landing of Apollo 11 was no sure success. So he had a tragic eulogy prepared. He said, Fate has ordained that the men of Apollo 11 who went to explore in peace will stay on the moon to rest in peace. But guess what happened? They came back home safely. He didn't really know. Obviously, he was prepared for the worst, but he really didn't know. November 22, on November 22nd, 1963, an audience had formed to hear the words of the Dallas Luncheon. We in this country, in this generation, are here by destiny rather than by choice. John F. Kennedy would be assassinated just moments before he would give these words. You see, in history, in the future, there is a delicate veil which hangs between what is, what could have been, and what will be. And that's speaking of it from our perspective, but that's not God's perspective. God's perspective is he sees it all. He knows where it's headed. He knows the moments and the processes and the things that are there because he's outside of time. He's outside, he's an infinity. We're finite beings and and he sees it all playing out. He's not someone guessing at things. He's not someone who's distracted. He's not someone who's caught off guard when something happens. He knows exactly what's going on. So what is he up to? In the rest of this passage, there are five words that tell us that God is aware of how things will play out in our lives. These five words also represent the process that he uses to accomplish his purpose in our life to make us more like his Son. You see, so many times I've heard this passage preached, and it's not preached in the context of suffering or difficult circumstances. It's always something else. It's always that whole idea of, uh, of, uh, of predestination and trying to prove something as it goes along with that. But that's really not the context of these verses. What we're getting to read and these words we're going to look at are all in the context of suffering and difficult circumstances, And so therefore, I want you to look at the first word he shows us. It's the whole idea of foreknew. It literally means God knows in advance. He knows in advance. Verse 29, for whom he foreknew. Again, it's tied up in verses 28 and 29. The whole idea that we see his promise and then we see his purpose. And then it goes down and says, okay, now here's the process. First of all, you need to know that God knows everything in advance. Now, there's much controversy over this word among great Bible scholars. To understand, however, verses 29 and 30, you must start from the proper perspective. Now, let me tell you about perspective. You gotta, you have to literally, let's just say there's a perspective out there. How many of you have ever tried to focus in with a lens on a camera, especially a nice camera, and you're trying to focus it in? What The process that you go to focus it in to, to see the true picture, that's what this is. And here's what you got to understand when it comes to perspective. You, get, especially when it comes to God, you got to understand time versus eternity. You do realize we live in something called time. There's a definite beginning and a definite end as it relates to time. You step outside of time and you're in eternity. It's not measured by time. There's not a definite beginning nor end. Now, we can't get our minds around that. Can you? I can't. You can't. You're not incapable. But the thing that we need to understand is when we're looking at perspective as it relates to God and possibly even the events of our own life, we need to understand there's some things we don't understand. Time versus eternity is one of them. How about the whole idea of free will versus God's sovereignty? When things play out in our life, we think we're out there, we're navigating, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're, we're making our own moves, we're doing all this. But how, what about God's sovereignty? How does that fit in everything? That God is in control. Then there's that whole idea of knowledge versus mystery. When you look at God's word, that is a revelation to man. God's word, and think about this. Is his revelation to us. It is him unveiling truth. It's him unveiling promises. It's him unveiling certain things about who he is. And he says this, here it is right here. But guess what? There's still mystery associated with someone who's outside time. There's still mystery associated with someone who is deity, and we are finite beings. There's all kinds of mystery. We don't know all the answers. That's what makes God, God. How about this one? This whole idea of what we are capable of understanding versus what we are not capable of understanding. Now, let me ask you a question. I don't know about you, but I've learned to be able to accept the mystery of who God is and find comfort in it. That I can't explain everything there is about God. I've grown to find comfort in that. The problem with the intellectual, the problem with the world and its way of approaching God is it thinks it has to figure it all out. It has to have all the answers. And when the answers are not there, they turn away. We need to realize that's what's out there. When it comes to this whole idea that he foreknew, that he knew in advance who we were, here's what Paul is literally saying. Your commitment, your Christian life did not begin with your commitment to God. Your Christian life began when God committed himself to you. Does that not blow your mind? It's when he committed himself to you. That's the whole idea of foreknowledge. That's the whole idea that he foreknew. So God knew in advance. God knows everything. There's no past. There's no present. There's no future with God. He sees it all. It's interesting. Sometimes um, I made sure I have a TV set that um, can record. I love to record sporting events. Sometimes, especially on Saturday nights, I can't stay up late. I have, to, I have to be prepared to come in here and share God's word. And that's more important than a sporting event late Saturday night, at least as it relates to me. Because I, I do, I find it. But there's nothing wrong with recording it and looking at it later, right? Sometimes I'll do that and I'll come in here and maybe my team's playing, especially basketball. And it seems like every year the Carolina Duke game is on Saturday night as late as they can make it. And, and there's no way, because I'll sit, even if I sit there and watch it till 11.15, i I'll still be hyped up. Even if we lose, I'm still mad. Or, or when we win, I'm like, yeah, you know, it, two more hours before I go to sleep. So I just choose to just record it all. And then sometimes I'll come in here and Did you enjoy that game last night. Don't tell me anything, but I can tell by your expression it turned out good. Which normally means what? Carolina won, right? <laughs> so so anyway some of you are sitting there like you're not even talking about my team state but anyway well y'all not normally in that conversation no i'm just kidding but anyway (laughs) just kidding just kidding but here's what i here's what will happen i'll even know what the score is and you know what i'll do i'll still watch the game you say you must be bored out of your mind no i want to see how it happens And you know what? I'll sit there and I'll watch that game. And all of a sudden I'll see, let's just say Carolina won, which they went a lot. And they beat them by 20 points, which would be magnificent if it happened this year. And I'm sitting there and I already know that, but I'm sitting there watching the game. And all of a sudden Duke goes on like a 15 to one run. I mean, they just are killing it. Popping threes every time he turns around. And I sit there and I get all, all antsy about it. And I'm worried. I'm like, man, can they overcome this? And then it dawns on me, they won. Carolina already won. I know they won. Why am I so worked up over this run here? What about our life? Who knows the outcome? God knows the outcome. He knows where it's going to end. He says all things work together how? For good to those who love God. That means we win in the end. We know that, it's out there, it's spoken, he said it. And so all of a sudden we're here in this life and, and all of a sudden the enemy gets on a 15 to one run and, and, and they're scoring, they're dropping threes everywhere and we're thinking, oh my goodness, are we ever gonna see victory again? But we already won. As bad as it may get Sometimes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not bound by time. He can see the beginning and the end at the same time. Next, here's the process. He foreknew, God knows in advance. Number two, he predestined, God completes his purposes. God completes his purposes. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, if you look at the second part, it says, he also predestined. He not only foreknew, he predestined to be, predestined, also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. You know what the second part of this verse tells us? Again, what I said earlier, we're not the big picture. He's the big picture. When it says the firstborn, it means he's preeminent. It means this whole world, this whole life, the life that he died for me to have, is all centered around him. He's the big picture. I'm just a part of it. You're just a part of it. So our lives are not to be seen self-centeredly. By the way, this verse, let me tell you about this verse. This is where many people get off track. This verse is not talking about heaven or hell. This verse is written in the context of suffering and difficult circumstances. So in this, in the Bible, the word predestination, listen, this is something that through study is always used when it's talking about believers only. It's never used in reference to unbelievers. There are some people that believe God predestined some people to heaven and some people to hell. I don't believe that. Now I can't explain it. How well he knows everything. He knows. Yeah, he knows how it's going to play out. I can't. But I don't believe he created some to be able to send them directly to hell. I don't believe that. Now, now I think that's part of the mystery. We just don't understand that big part. But if that were true, then why would he tell us? Why would Jesus say in all Gospels, in the Book of Acts, to go out and tell people about the gospel? They need to be saved. Matter of fact, some people believe this concept so so much that when William Carey, one of the first missionaries who went out, wanted to spread the word to heathens, William Carey, when he was about to go out and start a world missions organization, here's what he said. Someone came up to him and said, young man, if God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without you. (laughs) A lot of mentality like that. But these scriptures are not talking about heaven and hell. These scriptures are talking about Christ-likeness. It's talking about what God is up to in your life when he's trying to bring you through. In this context, predestined means that those who are believers in God, he predestines them to become like Jesus. It is a work that he's doing. It's a process he's doing. Matter of fact, Philippians 1, 6 says it this way. Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Until he comes back to finish the process. He's still working. Predestined means when God saves you, he's going to see it through to fulfill his purpose in you. Thirdly, not only for new or predestined, he uses a third word, the word called. And it means that God takes the initiative. And we talked about this just a moment ago, but look at verse 30. It says, moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Paul simply means that God took the initiative in your salvation. God called you and you responded. You didn't take the initiative in your salvation. God did. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. He started the process. Therefore, if he did the calling, he has called you for a purpose. Keep in mind that his calling, listen, is not for your comfort and your convenience, but for his purpose. Again, as I said last week, we've Americanized the gospel We've Americanized how we believe God sees us. We believe as long as everything's comfortable and everything's convenient, God must be smiling upon us. Tell that to all the apostles who were killed and one that was exiled. They were fulfilling God's will perfectly, and some of them lost their heads. His purposes are not for our convenience or our comfort, it's about His purpose. The fourth word he uses is the word justified. It literally means God makes you acceptable. And when you look at verse 30, it says, whom he called these, he also justified. It means God makes you righteous. It means that you are in perfect standing with him. It means that you are usable in such a way that he can fulfill a purpose in you. Now, let me just say this. Why would he use the word there? We understand why he used it in other places in Romans because he was explaining what our salvation's all about. But why would he use it here after he's rectified the fact that now we're saved. Here's the process. He's doing something in our lives. When suffering comes to you, don't fret about it. Just understand God's working something out. So why would he put the word justified there? And here's why. God can't use anything that's defiled. He can't. Go look at the temple. There was nothing that was supposed to be used in the temple that was defiled. So when Christ died for you, he extended the fact that you were no longer defiled. That's you positionally. Practically how you played out at that out is a different matter. But here's what you need to understand. Positionally, that's how God sees you. You're perfect in his eyes. Only because of what Christ has done, not because you're perfect. Because hopefully you're sitting there and thinking, "I'm definitely not perfect." And if you don't believe it, just ask the person sitting beside you. They probably know you well enough to know. Matter of fact, I can tell you, you're not perfect. I see you. Okay, but here's what you need to understand: Positionally in Christ, you're perfect, which means He can use you for His purposes. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about that whole idea. Next, the whole idea of glorified. It means God brings victory. It says in the last part of verse 30, in whom he justified, these he also glorifies. This is the final state, the ultimate triumph. Uh, this is where the progression from conversion to consummation, is an unbra- unbroken chain reaching from eternity to ter- eternity. God foreknew way back before we were born, and he's going to glorify us out there in the future from eternity to eternity. How many of you have heard the, the gospel singer sing something like, when I was on the cross, or excuse me, when he was on the cross... I was on his mind. Yeah, there's something to that. But how do we respond to all this? If there's suffering in our life, there's a difficult circumstance in our life and, and he's given us all this truth. Hey, God's holding it all together. He's working out for good. You may be caught up in this part over here that's, that's about to sink you, but here's what you need to realize. There's the whole. This is the good part. You're, this is just one part of your life. How do you respond when you're in this part of your life? Look at your response. How do we respond to God's promise, his purpose, and his process? Romans eight thirty one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who? I went and did a little research. It could say who or what can come against us. Nothing can come against us. I don't care what you're suffering with this morning. I don't care what your difficult circumstances this morning. Nothing can touch your life apart from what God's purposes are happening in and through your life. So here's what that means. Every situation in life will either be, listen to this, you've heard it before, will either be a stepping stone or a stumbling block. It will either make you what? Bitter or better. The difference between bitter and better is just one letter. Ah, ah. Listen to this. You cannot choose the difficult circumstances you're probably living in today. You, you couldn't have chosen. Even if you sinned and you're reaping what you've sown, you, you, you couldn't choose any of that. It just came to your life. It's what played out. And all of a sudden you're sitting here. You can either get bitter about it fall down in your guilt and shame, or you can become better through it. And God can do a great work in your life. The difference is this, you can't control all that, but you can control, listen, how you respond to it. And will you respond to it the way God's word says you should respond to it? That's the key. Every disappointment has the potential, you've heard this before, to become his appointment. When we realize he's using it all for good in our lives. Some of you are sitting here today and (laughs) something's come into your life. And as I said before, it's just rocked your world. You don't know if you'll ever be the same after this. You don't know if you could ever come through it. And maybe it's happened to you recently. And you're like, how do I deal with this? I'm trying to show you what God's word says about how to deal with it. I'm trying to show you what he's doing through it, what he's attempting to do. But here's the sad case. Some of you have been where you are tw- for 20 years. And you're sitting there and you, you've never known what to do with this. And you've become bitter. You, you, you've had hard feelings towards God. The relationship has taken its toll between you and uh, between your relationship with God. And, and all of a sudden for 20 years, let me let me tell you, I've seen this play out. You've still been coming to church because that's what you know you're supposed to do. You've still been reading maybe your daily bread or having some kind of thing. But it doesn't mean what it used to mean. It's because you just kind of kept playing the game. You just kind of went with it. And it's become just pure religion to you. And that relationship you once had, it's not what it used to be with him. And for some of us, we think, well, God just kind of put me on the shelf. And he, he doesn't care anymore. No, He cares. It's just you're not willingly becoming a part of the process. He's a perfect gentleman. He's not going to force you. He, he, he asks for your surrender. <laughs> he asks that you just trust him. And that's where it comes down to. Look here. How do we respond? First of all, you need a teachable response. A teachable response. I had a, I had a man tell me one time back when I was uh, the student pastor here at Putnam. I was here. And the guy just out of the blue. He was someone that came in, he got to know the staff. And uh, how many of you remember that group Life Action that came many, many years ago? Anyway, he sat down with me. He said, Listen, I see something in you that if you'll keep cultivating that, God's gonna use you in a great way. And I was sitting there like, Wow, you see something God could use? Wow, let me, tell me what it is. Here's what he said You're teachable. You're teachable. You don't think you have all the answers. God wants to do a work in your life. Just continue to be teachable. And that's always been on my head, in my head. I got to remain teachable. What does that mean? When you need to be teachable, when you're going through the toughest time in your life and you say, God, I don't know what you're up to, but teach me. I don't understand. Teach me. Or when the great things come into your life and all of a sudden you think, man, I must be God's favored. And look at me. I tell you, boy, I'm doing good. Look at, look at all this still got to be teachable. When you lose the ability to be teachable, the process doesn't work in your life. What does the process look like when you're teachable? Number one, there's trust. There's trust. Hold your place. Turn to Psalm 37. I will finish this today. I promise. Psalms 37, turn there. As you turn, listen to this. Have faith in God and his purposes, even when you don't understand why what is happening is happening. If God knows what is going on, even though you don't know, the whole matter really comes down to trust. Doesn't it? It does. If you don't know, he knows, then what do you have to do? You gotta trust. So in Psalms 37, David, we know David wrote the Psalm. Here's what he said in verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. But here's some more commands. Rest in the Lord and wait and wait patiently for him. What's that whole idea? He's up to something. Do not fret. Because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. What he's saying here is quick, putting your eyes on everyone who seems to be getting away with the world, getting away with everything. How many of you know people in your life that seem like they get away with everything? They go around, they talk bad about everybody and it never seems to come back on them. They do all these terrible things and, and, and it's almost like they get away with everything. He's saying, you know what he's saying here? Get your eyes off them. Quit looking at them. Quit comparing yourself to them. You focus on what God wants to do in your life. That's what he's saying here. Don't fret because of what they're getting away with. He says, but then this is what we can relate. Cease from anger. How many of you those people make you angry? And cease or forsake wrath and revenge. And then he says again, do not fret. It only causes harm. It means there's potential to sabotage the process God's trying to do in your life. So what kind of words can we take between verses five and eight? Commit, trust, rest. You're going through the most difficult time in your life. Maybe it's right now. And he says, rest. Rest? I'm consumed with this. What do you mean rest? I don't sleep. Every time I turn around, it's in my mind. It's the forefront of my mind. Rest does not mean that you hold it here. Rest means you back it away. It's still there. You see it, but that's not your focus. Your focus is on the purposes of God, the purposes of God. So when difficult situations arise in your life, commit Trust, rest, wait patiently. He's up to something. Don't fear, don't get angry, and don't lash out. But every one of us many times are capable of doing that, whether we're doing that to another individual or God himself. You ever lashed out at God? Here's the question. Do you really trust God with your life? Do you really believe he's working in your life? a teachable response. First of all, there's trust. Second, there's submit. The Bible says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Don't submit to temptation. When temptation comes, well, how do you respond to it? You don't feed doubt and bitterness and fear, because guess what? When temptation comes, that's what's going to the door. That's how you'll be defeated. What do you have to feed? You got to feed faith. You got to feed trust. You got to feed belief. So the question is, what are you submitting to? We're all submitting to something. Next, a teachable spirit, excuse me, a teachable response. Trust, submit, and then there's contentment. Contentment. Look here on the screen. Paul writes, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned. He's had to learn this. There was a discipline that had to be built in his life. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be what? Content. I know how to be a base. That means I know how to do without. I know how to, be, to abound. That's when there's a lot of things in my Everywhere and in all things, I have what? Learned. He's had to build the discipline, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then we use this verse all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's in the context of just learning how to be content. He's almost saying that's the hardest thing in the world to do. Listen to this thought. Contentment, look here on the screen. Contentment dispels many competing driving forces that come against God's purpose for our lives. Contentment dispels many competing driving forces that come against God's purpose for our lives. Let it soak in. That's a good quote. God gave it to me. (laughs) (laughs) no I'm just kidding I'm just telling you man when he I'm serious sometimes he just speaks as clear as he can speak and Lord knows we all deal with contentment and he says okay here's here it is right here contentment will keep you from allowing driving forces to come into your life that pull you away from my purposes if you'll learn to be content you'll see some things Next, gratitude. Our response, the teachable response. We need gratitude. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It doesn't say for everything, but it says in everything. It's the whole idea of potential, what God potentially could do. And then lastly, we need to be worshipful. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. It is possible to worship Him. And just find out the most difficult news you've ever found out in your life. When you realize he's the big picture, you're just a part of it. I don't understand. I trust you, God. I'm submitting my way to you. God, I want to be content and whatever you bring into my life. And God, I want to show gratitude. And God, I want to be worshipful. No matter what comes in my life, this is the goal. Here's the spiritual position in Christ. You've seen it over and over. Go ahead and skip to that screen. Here it is right here. Here's where we are. This is what Paul is trying to get through our heads in Romans 6 through 8. He's trying to get us to understand that we are living under grace. We are the believer. We're living under grace. And then he goes on and says we're, we're, we live above sin. We're living above sin. We don't have to be in bondage of sin anymore. We live above the law. God, It's not a list of do's and don'ts. Now we have a relationship with him. He's trying to get us to understand. It's not religious relationship. We can live above our flesh. We don't have to cave all the time to the flesh. He gives us power. We can live above condemnation. Many people are living there. We're supposed to be living under grace and above condemnation. And then last of all, what we've been discussing for the last three weeks, we can live above suffering. We don't have to live under suffering. We can live above suffering but the only way we get there is to get to where Paul's talking about here. Would you stand to your feet? Father, we just come to you right now. And Lord, so many times we just don't understand why we go through what we go through and why what is happening is happening. And many times I I have to say, I I take on the attitude of woe is me. And I just want to go tuck my head in the sand and pretend like it's not happening, but Father, help us to understand some of this may be the perfect will for us, that getting to the purpose you have for us may come through the difficult circumstance. It may come through the suffering, and Father, there's so many times I believe there's people in this room who want to trust. They want to submit. They want to be content. They want to have a heart of gratitude. They want to be worshipful, but Father, so many times they're. They're they're focused so much on what they're going through that they're not seeing the big picture. Lord, you're the big picture. Help us to see that. I don't know what someone's going through in this room, what they're going through, but Father, I know you do. And I just pray you've taken this word and you've worked it into their lives that this becomes a part of who they are, your word. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as a Lord and Savior, I pray today will be the day to give the heart to you, Father. Father, for that one that may be here today just needs someone to pray with them, I pray they'll respond. And Father, I pray if there's someone here that believes this is their church home, you call them to be a part of Father, you do that work also. Have your way in this service. In Jesus' name, amen.